so yeah, thanks for scheduling this with me. What I like to do in podcasts, very free flowing. Uh, I like to start from like the very beginning, like regarding Quest Analytics. Did you? So you're the board. Of, you're on the board of directors, but did you start Quest Analytics, or how did that? How did that come about initially? Yes, I. It's a it's a pretty long story. So, um, 2011, I started a company called Better Doctor, and uh, that company was then sold to Quest on uh, 2008, and uh, I became the CEO of the company. And um, just recently, I I stepped up to a board of director role uh, at the end of the year, and uh, and right now I'm, I'm mainly taking a more of a sabbatical and uh, slowly incubating my, my new venture. Okay, cool. Um, but, but you, you, you were like very, you had, you were hands on regarding the start of the company. Like well, so the, the quest analytics, so it's a bit, a uh, bit complex. So you have, um, uh, so better doctor quest analytics, and then a company called the uh, access that was okay. owned by optum that was okay. all uh, brought together, uh, 2019. So basically, you have three companies that combine together as one, and uh, that was backed by private equity. So Quest Analytics was founded um, about uh, 16 years ago, and Zero uh, Act wow. was founded about almost 30 years ago. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so it was really kind of this interesting um, uh, mixture of you know adding adding the companies together and the unifying the the platforms into one. So that was really the. It. The main that. goal for the next, last uh, last couple of years of my life, and but you know I've I've been I've been an entrepreneur since uh, I think '99, uh, when my my uh, housemates they started a company and I was involved in that from the beginning, and um, since then I've been building new businesses in different fields. I think um, the next move will be probably counting fifth or sixth business. Wow, I love that. Um, have you always had your hands in a lot of like? Have you always been like very interested with just like all these separate types of businesses or SaaS companies? Have you always, is that, has that always been your interest? No. So I think, you know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm stupid uh, by default, but, um, or masochist, I don't know which one, but uh, I try to basically, and I, this is a very conscious decision. So I try to go to different field every time I do. Oh, so, I've been, <laughs> so I've been, I've been involved in the web um, publishing. I've been involved in video gaming. I've been involved in fast-moving consumer goods. I've been involved in healthcare, consumer healthcare, SaaS enterprise, and, and the next company will be in the space of food as medicine. So all completely different. But uh, you know, if you build a business, you know there are a lot of underlining functions and fundamentals that are the same. But uh, every time I had to learn a new language, new vocabulary, and uh, yeah. basically work with different people. So you can't really use the same people always because they, are, they, they need different traits. So your, your communication skills mu- must be insane. I, I think it's more my tolerance of ambiguity is high. Tolerance ambiguity. Belief in the outcome and, and belief in the, in the process. I mean, that's something that I, I think I've gotten quite good at. So I, I, I know that you know, every day will be hard. But if you just keep your legs moving one in front of another and you improve every day a little bit, in the end, you know, you, you end up somewhere. And, and that's kind of the, the focus I always have had. And I have kind of this thesis of seven points that I think uh, when I talk about entrepreneurship and founding a company, 
there are kind of seven steps that I, I often talk to people about. What are those? Okay. So I want to get into those seven steps, but so tell me about, so better doctor first. Okay. So the only thing I looked at, you know, regarding your, your history was quest analytics. Cause I see that you're the, a, a member of the board of directors, but better doctor, like, can you tell me a little bit about that and how you started that? And, you know, and then when you decided to merge all the companies to, to form uh, quest analytics. Yeah. So better doctor was, um, my kind of first step into the world of healthcare. And, um, and I'm from, from Finland. Um, uh, last week, I became a proud American citizen. So beware, you know, the politicians. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. And, and, and that, that, that's, that's kind of fun, fun step in the last you know, few weeks. But um, I, I had a knack for um, the healthcare since uh, year 2000. So my, my, my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time had a health issue that um, uh, it was basically a, a thyroid issue that led into a lot of different uh, issues that we had to work with doctors and we had to work with diet and so forth. And, and since then, you know, things were kind of complicated and healthcare was always part of our life. Yeah. And uh, I moved, uh, we moved to US uh, 2008 to the Bay Area. And uh, we had a really nice gold-plated insurance plan from uh, United, and we could go to any doctor we want. And uh, we ended up seeing probably some 30, 40, 50 different doctors in order to, you know, kind of, you know, mediate the issues we had, and also to get pregnant and start a family. And uh, that was really complicated, and especially when you come from Europe and you have a different lens into the market, so you know it can be different. It doesn't need to be like it is here. Because if you, you brought up to the US system, you don't really know about different things. You, don't, you can't compare. And I've, I've been living in multiple countries and you, know, you can basically, you know immediately that there's something wrong with this. And just the basic things like uh, finding a doctor was extremely time consuming. Not to even talk about finding a good doctor for you or yeah. finding the doctor who can do the specific thing America, you want. man, America, that's, that's the problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it felt like, uh, you know, I'd, I had been in the online space and, and the web for a long time. And to me, it felt like a marketplace that, you know, why can't we build a marketplace like we have in open table or we have in, in real estate now and elsewhere. And uh, we, we just put together a group of people. Uh, my co-founder, he was my, my colleague at Nokia, where we used to work together for a long time. And um, we just started to build the company on a premise of uh, kind of copying the good ideas in other markets and marketplaces and then deploying them in healthcare. So we were trying to do a system that you can book on online doctors and you can find a doctor you love. That was the message. And um, first we focused on consumers. We quickly get the millions of consumers using our platform. We were driving tens of thousands of bookings to doctors. But uh, it just was really difficult because the underlying platforms and the, and the technical enablement was not there. So you couldn't read and write the EMR. You couldn't really have a booking system that a doctor would respond. You didn't have a system to confirm that you really have the PPO plus from uh, Blue Cross that you have. And nobody did those steps properly. So we were ending having this sort of a marketplace where a lot of people are moving back and forth, a lot of activity. But then in the end, you make a booking and the doctor might not be there at all. It might be the wrong address. They might yeah. not know you are coming. You might have a wrong insurance plan. So you get out of, out of you know, a pocket uh, payment. So all those things happen all the time. And we discovered that 
this is not really about building a marketplace that helps you to find a doctor you love. It will be the basic plumbing we have to build. So we ended up moving from the consumer side into plumber, plumbers and focusing on getting the doctor information right on every doctor. Basically, we went from building a high-end mobile apps to making phone calls to doctor offices. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and that, that's was, well, that, was need, that was needed. And you know, that really helped you know, then build a sustainable company. And that was the company that we then in the end, uh, sold uh, to the private equity company, Vestar Capital. So, so was it humbling to have to call in these doctor's offices? Was it, was it hard to do that? Like, tell me, tell me about that experience. Well, that's a good point because, you know, we, we started this because, you know, I, I believe in one of the kind of the big beliefs I have in, in business and in life overall, that if you believe and you have a conviction of something that you know and you believe and nobody else around you even knows about, that's yeah. power. So, you know, something that people don't know. And if you have a conviction, maybe you are right or wrong, but if you happen to be a little bit right, there's an opportunity to do something about it. And I knew from, the, from my platform that, you know, this data is like 30% wrong on a phone number, on an address level. And people are just, they can't find doctors and, and nobody's keeping this data up to date. And uh, we, we made phone, phone calls ourselves. And then we realized that, you know, the best way to collect data is to send faxes. So we, we ended up having health insurance companies as clients and they gave us permission to send faxes and phone calls and emails and so forth, even mail to the doctor offices. And then we, we converted them to use our online platform. But the beginning had to be on faxing and phone calls and, and snail mail. And that was really, really humbling, as you said. Like, you know. <laughs> and, and nobody had done it really in that way. Uh, so we, we were probably the first one to really do it in scale. And we, I'm talking about millions of faxes acquire millions of phone calls a year. I mean, it's it's a lot of scale. Wow. So cold, cold calls, 100% cold calls. You know, it's funny. Not not in a way cold call because we we had, of course, a mandate from, you know, many different um, uh, players in the healthcare ecosystem that we were doing the calling on behalf of. So we were calling as better doctor and we still do every day, by the way. Uh, But there was this idea that, you know, there was also a mandate from the, the companies that they know well and work with. Got it. Got it. Okay. I understand. Um, so it wasn't a complete cold call, but still pretty cold. I mean, you know, even though it's a little bit more warm, you know, it's still, it's not like you're talking to these doctors every day, you, you, you know, you know, so that's great. Um, okay. So then you, you, you formed the company with quest analytics because by the way, can I, can I just mention something about healthcare really quick? Yeah. Um, so you're right. It's, it is very hard for some reason in Europe, you know, you can, you can t- talk to a doctor very easily. Uh, you can get them to visit you. Um, but you f- do you feel like it's much different in, in the States, right? Like, it's very hard to get a hold of doctors in the States. Like, very difficult. Well, I, I think, you know, um, I think what you, what you described in Europe maybe was like that in the 70s. But, yeah. but today, it is um, basically an optimized system in most countries where you will get the catastrophic care when you need it, but you will have a hard time accessing for, let's say, a dermatologist. There's usually a line. So often now you basically book it online and you can get the appointment in, in the next few weeks. I don't think there are many countries where you get the doctor walking in your home uh, because the fact of life is that, you know, these countries are spending about third of the money per capita in healthcare. Of course, we can talk, you know, Another podcast about the reason why our system is so expensive. <clears throat> but in Europe, there is not enough money 
to see patients equal amount as we do in the U.S. So the number of visits is lesser. And of course, there are more deployment of nurse practitioners and nurses in the flow. For example, if you become, a, you become pregnant, you have babies. In most countries in Europe, you don't really see a doctor more than once a year. And then otherwise, you are co communicating with a nurse practitioner. So in the U.S., you have a baby. In the beginning, you do well checks you know, almost monthly with the doctor. That's, of course, hugely expensive. So I, I don't think the access is any better. But the, di the difference is that the system is basically a fixed system that you access when you have a problem. You don't think about the cost. So if you get a critical problem in your life, you go and the hospital, you get care. You don't pay anything about it. Maybe you pay a copay of 100 bucks a night in a hospital. But that's all. But in here, we basically have to be a consumer of the healthcare system. And we don't have the tools to do that. We don't have the knowledge to do that. It's like buying a car. I mean, most people don't know much about the cars. They buy the, the ad, based on the ad. In healthcare, yeah. we, we really don't have the ads. It's very convoluted. You have 200 plus specialities of doctors. Am I going to go to dermatologist of this kind or that kind? Am I going to go to uh, what type of doctor? So it's just almost impossible for us to be conscious consumers of healthcare here. And that's why I think it becomes complicated because this massive information, this advantage you as a consumer, you just don't know anything about the market that you are accessing. And then the doctors and the system knows all about it. So you can't really be a good conscious buyer of services. Yeah, well, it's, it's just true that you, you feel a need. So it's definitely a need out there. Um, I don't know. My experience has been it's, it's, it's hard to uh, talk to doctors, you know, um, just with my family members being sick and stuff like that. So it's always been difficult. So I, I see that there's a strong need of, for that. Like essentially you're a communications platform. That's how I see it. Is that, would you, would you uh, describe your company like that? Communications platform? Well, so the, the better doctor, it became basically a, um, a tool for collecting and upkeeping accurate information about doctors and then feeding yeah. that into the system. So uh, we built APIs to power other companies. We, we gave this data uh, for our clients, for our health plans and, and others. And we basically made the data better so the consumers can access good data. When we merged together the three companies, Quest, uh, better doctor, and then still access. Um, we basically formed a company that is focusing solely on network management for health plans and, right. and government and states. So what basically Quest does today, we are uh, the platform for health insurance companies to build networks of doctors and ensuring that that network is compliant with different regulations. It's highly accessible by consumers, and it's also uh, robust enough that you know, they are offering a service for everybody who can find doctors nearby in the vicinity. So for example, every time a, an employer is asking for an RFP for a new health insurance. So you, know, you are an employer, you talk to Signan, Etna, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The health, health insurance companies and the brokers who are the middlemen here, they are using our tools, the Quest tools, uh, to send a report to the employer telling that how well is my network covering your employees. Mm. Like if you, if you happen to live like far away of the office, um, you don't want to have a health plan from a health insurance company who has no doctors in your city or vicinity. Yeah, of course. 
So thousands and tens of thousands of those um, uh, RFPs are submitted every month with our tools. Thousands of people use our tools full time in brokers and health insurance companies to create these RFPs. That's one element what we do. That's called the kind of access analysis. So it's very enterprise kind of behind the system that you don't ever encounter as a consumer, but all the networks today that you access as a consumer are, are basically define and build with our tools. So with the health plans, we also, we also work with CMS. Uh, so if you are Medicare Advantage plan, Medicare plan, you use our tools to make sure that your doctor network is, is compliant with all the Medicare rules. Medicare says that you need to have a certain number of doctors, a certain kind in a different, you know, zip codes, for example. So that's all done with our tools as well. And then we also now are ensuring that the data that they have is also accurate and up to date because we added the better doctor layer. So that's kind of the, the company. So it's very uh, behind the scenes enterprise company working with health plans, governments and states and making sure that the doctor network that you are accessing with your card is up to date, accurate and, and accessible. I love it. I love it. Okay. And uh, okay. So let's go back to, you said seven, there's principles that you know, you can be applied to any industry. Um, you said you're a masochist because you like to go from industry to industry, <laughs> uh, from one industry to the next. I can see that because, yeah, I mean, that that, that would drive me nuts um, for, for me personally. But I think I could do it. I think I could do it. But but I think there has to be a little bit of like, like you said, you're comfortable with ambiguity. You're comfortable with like like changing things up. I think I'm comfortable with that stuff. But Man, I, I can't imagine like just jumping into something like like new because it takes uh, it takes a while, you know, it took a while for me to, to start seeing some success with my company. So I'm like, you know, to, to go into that startup mode, did, did you feel like you were going into the startup mode again? Like when you went to from industry to industry? I, I mean, I, I think I'm in that mode every day. Yeah, that's why I, I think, that. you know, my 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 strong suit is not. Um, at the stage of, you know, massive um, establishment in a way that I'm, I'm finessing the process. I'm more of a builder of a process. And now, I mean, like Quest, I mean, it, it grew to, you know, it's a mid-sized company and it's pretty big already. So you have hundreds of people and so forth. So it becomes a very different animal to operate. And uh, of course, your role as a CEO then is very much about the, um, the culture, the vision, and also hiring, but also being the figurehead in like in sales setting and also in the in the media setting. And you don't really do much of the work that you love. And um, and I just love the beginning. I love the beginning of a of a new. Yeah, me too. And, and, and you don't really have that if you go to a big company. You can be in a I'm being a big company building a new thing. So you can have these pockets of isolation when you you are funded like a startup in a big company, and that's fun. But um, it quickly when you grow, then it becomes very different quickly. Yeah. Um, have you guys become more corporate as you've grown? Like, so, you know, you're more like startup feel and then you become more corporate. Well, you want to, you want to retain the, the certain elements of the, of the, I, mean, I think the startups really, well, if I, if I may, I mean, let, let, let me talk about the, the seven points that I think, um, yeah, I, yeah, don't have a, I don't have a book or anything about this, but it's just a, a thing I, I've been talking many times about, maybe there's a book coming. Um, I don't promise. Maybe, maybe you should. Yeah. Maybe you should do a book on this. 
so, so the first thing that, you know, I always talk to people, I think it's very important and it applies to everybody and everything is that, you know, you should only work on things that you care enough to spend a decade on. Like if you start a company, you would only start it if you really care about it enough to spend a decade on it. If you, if you ask you, yourself on a mirror, ask you like, hey, what if I spend 10 years doing this? How, how do I feel about it? And that's not an easy answer. I mean, most, most time you're going to see people saying, uh, that would suck. Mm. No way. Uh, like, and then, then that leads into the, the second one, which is, you know, uh, tackle meaningful problems. And, and tackle problems that you want to be a legacy. Again, thinking about, you know, looking at your, your, your engraving your gravestone. And is this yeah. a legacy you want to have on your gravestone? Is this an area that you want to make a difference in the world? Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, no problem. So th- those are the two things I, I really, and, and so keep discussing with, so I'm an investor in quite a few companies. I advise a lot of companies. So those are always the first things we talk about because it's important to make sure that the people who are uh, starting this journey, they actually are focusing on something that they really care enough about that they will continue because there will be ups and downs and mainly downs in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, mainly and downs, then, yeah. But you got to enjoy that then, process. You got to enjoy that process. Yeah. T- totally. And then the third one really is that, you know, you need to handpick the initial hires and or your co-founders because they will define the culture and they will likely de- determine the outcome. If you pick the wrong people, you know, you can start with the, uh, with the C players. It, it's a C company. You're never going to become an A player company if you pick the wrong people in the beginning because, you know, the A players will not want to work in a, in a company with them with the wrong people from the get-go. That's very important. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, so so what, what is your idea on, on attracting A players in your company? It's tough. I mean, because, you know, you are the one attracting the people. So do you know somebody? You're, you're looking at the raw data. It's like, okay, who's on the phone I know? <laughs> and it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I think it gets easier um, the, the more you establish yourself. And the more you understand that, you know, it, it, it's fine. It takes time to find the right people. It's fine at times to spend a year looking for some talent. Maybe you have, you know, stopgap. You hire outside consultants, whatever, to help in the beginning. But, you know, it can take a year to find the right person. Once you find the right person, lock them in and really, you know, believe in them. And, put, and always when you hire somebody, it's like, you know, in professional sports. Um, if, if you hire somebody... Believe in them 100%, back them 100% until you don't back them and then you fire them. Like, there's no middle ground. You have to be fully behind everybody. And until you are not, you, you, you are, you're rallying every day. And then when it doesn't work, you fire immediately. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, hiring A players, you know, one of the things that sometimes worries me, just as a business owner myself, is that I need A players that also have a good heart. Because I feel like A players, they have a lot of options, right? They, at any moment, they can go, I'm going to get another job. They don't care. Like, it, it's, but if they have a good heart, they're loyal. I think those are two things that are important. And you treat them well. I think that's, like, important as well. But um, how do you feel? Like, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, let's say there's a downturn in the economy or something happens to the company, like you want the, the, the A players to stay, but I feel like the A players are the first ones to leave usually. What, what do you? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it's a cute point, but it, I think we have, a, we have a superpower in healthcare because yeah. in healthcare, you can find people who are, um, I, I like to call them uh, broken people. And I think I have hired more than three, 400 broken people in the last decade. Meaning yeah. by 
that is uh, people who have experienced healthcare drama, who have had a family member who died, family member who had cancer, people who had health issues, people who lost their kids. Uh, these are the people who really care because they have seen the dark side of health. And they really yeah. feel that they're going to be lifers in healthcare. They might not work for your company, your company, but they will stay in healthcare. The same applies in, I spent a lot of time in video gaming, almost 10 years. And uh, easiest place to hire, because you know, gaming is a place where people absolutely love it. If you, if you work in a video game company, you will never work elsewhere. They have, it's just a unique environment because these people are they're gamers. They love it. It's their passion. Same, I think, in movies and TV. There are people who just absolutely love that, that space. I think same in politics, same in media. But there are many other fields like, uh, you know, fast-moving consumer goods. I don't know if anyone really loves doing another Cetos uh, or whatever, like another flavor of the Coke. Like, doesn't really, it doesn't really impact much. So yeah. if you work in a field, now that's really more about the, the, the first two rules, like tackle a meaningful problem that you believe in, work on the stuff that you care enough about, and you can attract people who are like you. But then, of course, when you hire the first, you know, 20 people, 100 people, you can't fire, you can't only hire people who look, look, look as you. You need to hire for the diversity because it's just a fact of life that the more diverse the group is from the gender base and from I the you know, race, so it just becomes better. And it's more fun to work in an environment where you, not everybody is mimicking you or being a copy of you. I agree. Yeah. You can tell the cultures, they're much different, you know, with like a monolithic type of um, feel in a company versus like there's all types of colors, gender, everything. It's always better that way for sure. So, okay. So the first two rules, the first rule is spend, spend time on something that you would want to spend time for a decade on. Okay. And the second rule is do something that you find meaningful uh, as opposed to something that isn't really doesn't really make an impact, doesn't really give you a, a great legacy, whatever the case may be. Okay, so then let's move on to the third rule. What's the third rule? Third rule is handpicking the initial hires that define the culture and determine the outcome. Um, we talked about that already. Fourth rule is um, uh, break the execution in the small chunks. Don't swallow the whole whale at once and, and really believe in, I think the, the startup, uniqueness about startup is that it's a vehicle, it's a vitriol, to iterate, build, test, learn, improve. Build, test, learn, improve. That's the, the, the cycle that you can do. And if you believe in that and you believe in the process, every day you improve a little bit, every week you improve a little bit more, you know, it just adds up. And over the years, you know, you build amazing things. Uh, but it's, it's critical to break the execution in the smaller pieces and don't try to do the best thing in the beginning because you're just gonna iterate forever. And, and also in that notion is that uh, the perfect is a big enemy of the good. If you're trying to be the perfect, you'll never be anything. You have to get stuff out when you are embarrassed. And that's stuff in healthcare because, you know, we know we can kill people. So we don't want to get stuff out too early. We can't yeah. break stuff too fast. But we have to be bold on launching something before you are really happy about it. And that's the fifth rule, basically. Uh, go to customers. I agree with that so much. I agree with that so much. Like, you know, th there's a lot of people in my space, like in, in marketing, that have to have things perfect uh, before they put things out. And uh, I'm like, no, 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 no. I've, I've, I've done like 71 pod. I've, I think now I've done like 75, something like that, podcasts. 
um, before people even get their first podcast out. <laughs> because they're like, I need to be perfect. I need to have it this way. I need to be on video. It needs to be, have the, the right lighting, all that stuff. And I'm like, there's people I know. I like, I, they were talking about starting a podcast. They haven't even put out their first episode yet. And it's been like a year. So it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, come on. Like you just, just put it out there and, and you'll improve, you know, over time, you know, you know, you, that those things will improve over time. But dude, I, I agree with you so much because people that take forever to do things don't succeed. So, you know, so you're hundred percent right. I love that. And that's the fifth rule. You, you actually iterate perfectly. Go to customer as early as possible. And if possible, ask them to pay for it. Don't give it out for free. I mean, podcasting is maybe free, but Go and ask people to pay. I mean, it's like, no, I mean, I'm just doing it. I mean, we are, we are testing it out. No, go and ask people to pay even a penny. If they pay a penny, you have something. If they don't pay anything, it's not right. Yeah, if, so, so you're saying that if, if, if people aren't buying your product right away, like it's not an easy fit for them. It's not like, oh man, I need that, that particular service pretty quickly. Then you probably should adjust, change the direction of your company. Right. And even not, not maybe even like, you know, the money is not the point here. The point is that if I'm asking anyone to pay for something, they will uh, look at it differently. I mean, we all get, we all, so there was a research done uh, back in my 10, 15 years ago in our life. Uh, we did a consumer study on something. And the outcome of the study basically was people appreciate free gifts. I'm like, that's a surprise. <laughs> people appreciate free stuff. Like, <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> that was the outcome? So if, if you put the price tag, people are looking at it in a way, oh, this is real. I need to make a decision. If we get it for free, of course I can take it for free, but I don't really learn anything from the process. Yeah, that's so true. 100%. I agree with you on that. Um, what do you think about like hard products to sell? Like they, they make a lot of money, but they're, they're hard services to sell, um, you know, but they're necessary. But... Like, what do you think about that? Because, like, I think you have, like, an easier product to sell or an easier service to sell. But there's people in other fields that have hard things to sell. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, just services, consulting, things like that. I think those are hard things to sell for sure. Um, do you have, like, a, a thought process on choosing the right product, um, whether it's easy or hard to sell? Yes, yeah, so I think, you know world is very different and I, I i've been in the consumer side selling uh, a five dollar thing and i now the last years i've been in the enterprise healthcare side where we have a two-year sales cycle and uh, the price that can be up to five to six million a year so i mean i, I wouldn't call that easy to sell <laughs> if it takes two years and it involves many people in the process and as an example you know when you when you do these big enterprise deals in healthcare uh, often the case is that the, the procurement process, the buying process can take up to six months. And sometimes you need 15 people to sign the deal, including the CEO and layer, layers of down of people uh, in the companies. And that signing process can take two months. So it's absolutely difficult. Um, and you can only do that by uh, doing pilots and doing small deals and then either. So the whole idea in enterprise um, that I don't know if you have done that, but you know, it really is about the, uh, landing and expanding. That's the only way to do enterprise sales. Landing means that, you know, you sell a widget, you sell something small to one department, one team, one unit, one person. And then 
it kind of opens up the floodgate and then you can sell the two, 10, 100, 10,000. Uh, talk about seeds, for example, if you are selling a product that is seed-based, like, uh, like Zoom, we are using Zoom video now here. You know, Zoom has been absolutely killing it in this way. You know, they landed into one team and then it became enterprise-wide. And look at the Zoom uh, trajectory. I mean, that's one of the most amazing stories in the last uh, decade. Most people don't know Zoom, but uh, you look at Zoom, Okta, enterprise SaaS companies that have grown like wildfire and now are valued in tens of billions. Wow. Um, okay, so you, you said, okay, so do, you th- do you feel like the CEOs in these enterprise companies know other CEOs in the enterprise companies? So when you get one of the CEOs, it becomes easier to get the other CEOs? Well, I think, you know, in, in a case of um, a, a solution like, uh, like Zoom and, and something, these are kind of these enterprise um, uh, services that are very consumer oriented. They're like yeah. consumer great services. We, we, are, you know, we are just, you know, one-on-one here. We don't have, we don't need to have 20 people on a call. So it works with this. But if you build this more like a SaaS software for the uh, more complicated uh, uh, utilities in a health plan, for example, or in, in hospitals or anywhere, um, I think, you know, you just need to basically um, build these case studies and an understanding of uh, what are you creating? What is the ROI? What is the benefit for people to buy? Uh, but you also need to understand the market really well. Uh, where do you get the budget? Who is going to pay for this? Because it can be, there are so many different departments. And, and then you need to understand what are they doing today? What are, what are you replacing? Where, where do you take money away? Are you lowering cost so they can actually add money from somewhere else to you and then you lower the cost from elsewhere? It's very difficult to go to a big company and say, I need a million bucks now that you have never spent before. Inventing mm. a new category is quite hard and it can take a long time. And if you think about, I think my company has been a great example, uh, the Quest Analytics as, as today, because we have probably um, more than 50 years of sales cycles because you know, the companies are you know, almost 20 years and almost 30 years old and, and the better was about, uh, about eight years old. So we all have been selling to the same clients a long time and the sales team has been about you know five to twenty people so how many years of selling is that that's man years but we talk about hundreds of man years of sales sales time and that's yeah. how long it takes to build the, the the belief and the trust in the client yeah so if you are a new company and you go to the enterprise i mean it's almost impossible to penetrate without having a channel partner or without having case studies or without having a, a hugely beneficial product it's very difficult yeah, you got to partner with somebody that already has enterprise clients, pretty much. That helps. And bundle it then. And, and then, you know, you can go to the CEO and, you know, at the big company. And even if you get that communication going, the CEO can't mandate to buy something. Because it could be five layers down. And that system is very good at saying no. So everybody can say no. Nobody can say yes. Uh, and it's like you need to get the four people at the same time to jump and say yes and turn the key. <laughs> buy something. It's almost impossible. Oh man, that's a tough sale. <laughs> I've never, I've never sold into enterprise. I sold into bigger companies, and the bigger companies, I'm already like, this is tough already. You know, like you know, not even mid-sized companies. You know, mid-sized companies where they have like maybe like six executives, um, but when you have to get 15 of them, <sighs> wow! I can't imagine being in the boardroom with 15 of these guys. <laughs> By the way, we have 400 clients a day. 400. 
Wow. Wow. That's great. So it's, it's a lot. That's why it's, a, it's been a lot of work to, from a lot of people um, over many years to, to do this. I always and thought... Of course, oh, good. The, the, the point here is that, you know, like, well, we have... We, we only got them there because, you know, it's not nothing to do with me. I mean, it's the, the people who founded the, the companies previously uh, who have done amazing work, who are still involved in the, in the business today. They have done amazing work over 20 years to sell to these clients. Uh, but we only have succeeded in the end because of one thing. Uh, the, the number one value at, at Quest Analytics is customer first. And, you know, everybody wants to say that. And when we put the companies together and I saw the culture that these companies have had for a long time because of the founders beliefs, I was, um, I was amazed. I never seen that anywhere. So we basically uh, did first time the uh, net promoter survey, understanding how do the clients think about us as a client, as a company delivering services. And our results were over 70 in NPS survey. And you, as a marketer, you know that's a good score in anywhere, but that's unheard of in enterprise software. Yeah, wow, that's so people really liked what we, we were doing something valuable in a niche that is needed. And we were doing in a way that the people really cared about us. They really loved our team. I mean, we have people who've been working with these clients for over a decade and they are communicating every month. So they became more as friends. And, um, and the epiphany for me was that when you, we had a first time, I, I was involved in a, uh, our annual client event. So we invite clients every year uh, to some nice warm destination. And we had a couple hundred people in, in Florida uh, last year. And it's called Vision Quest, the event. And uh, it's basically a hug fest. The, the people are hugging our team members, our engineers. That's and amazing. They are really <laughs> bonding together. And to me, I've never seen that. I mean, to me, that's, that was the piece of it. You know, it takes a village and it takes years to build this relationships and then you become a you, you're not only a vendor you are a partner for all the clients a friend a friend really friend yeah yeah um okay so so i i, I this thought came into my head right now but so when you form these three three companies together when you put these three companies together did you have clients that you know, you wanted to keep in your company or keep for yourself or did you just like combine everything? And so it belonged, those clients belonged to everyone. How did you, how did you manage that process of like, this is, this is our client, this is your client. Yeah. So Quest, Quest was the, the biggest of the three and everything was rolled under Quest and uh, all the clients were combined into one. There was a lot of migration because we had uh, services that were kind of uh, complementary a little bit. So we had to combine the clients. We spent a lot of last year doing that work. And, um, and we also now, it took us about a year and a half to build a one enterprise platform where all the different company products are now in one suite of products. So you can yeah, you yeah, have yeah. one view. So that, that's always what you have to do because you can't keep them separate. Otherwise, you get no benefit really of, of combining all the companies together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see, I see that. Yeah, and, and I, I should have connected the dots on that. And uh, yeah, I understand that. But... Uh like you have relationships. So I'm just trying to figure out how you guys navigate. You have relationships with these companies. They have relationships with those companies. Like who takes the blame if you lose a company? Like, I know you don't lose a lot of companies, but like, how does, how does that all work? Like do like, for instance, if, if so the three companies, if I have something, I, something that needs, needs to be communicated to one of the clients do like, you're the person that got that client. Do you go out and you communicate with that client or is it like, everybody's involved or 
how does that work? Yeah, I think you make a great, it's a great question. I think maybe, maybe if I ask a little bit on the, on the side, um, in enterprise sales and, and overall in this sort of a uh, world where you are serving clients that have pretty high tickets of, of services and, and, and they use the service all the time or your product, whatever it is, um, usually it's built in a way that the sales team is, is selling. So they are, they are landing and expanding and finding new uh, buyers. And, and then the, the sales team, they can either be involved in the post sale or then they are not at all part of that. So in our case, they are somewhat part of the post sale and they continue to communicate with clients. We also have the biggest team in the company today is the, is the client service team. And this is the team that ensures that the clients are using. We have thousands of users. So they all can use the products. They are training them. They are helping them. They are dialoguing. You can call us every day. We have always a real person on the phone. So that's a mandate we have done for the company. That, you, know, you call us, we always have a real person who answers the phone. And that team is that. quite big. And, and that, that team basically is then covering the, the need and the, and the day-to-day operation of the clients. And we also have an account management team that is only for the, for the massive clients. And in healthcare, you have plenty, plenty of big companies like, uh, like you know, United Healthcare and you know, Cigna and Humana and all these guys. And, and these people are then basically air traffic controlling the communication because they can be at one of the big health funds can have 15 different teams that are separate companies working with us. So yeah. somebody has to kind of air traffic control that that all works in a way that they don't duplicate or buy the same thing again and, and so forth and helping the sales team and the client service team. So that's a pretty common way of managing a, a enterprise uh, system. And because you, you, you don't think that these clients are going to be with you for, you know, year or two, but you think that they're going to be with you for the next two decades. So it's a kind of very different. You can invest a lot more effort and money into the relationship because you're not going to have any 10,000 clients. We have a finite market of about 450 and we have 98% of them already as clients. Wow. Okay. I love that. Um, okay. So you talked about uh, a sixth thing or you, you, there's a sixth thing and a seventh thing. So I want to go over those things really quick. And, so the sixth, thing, um, sixth, sixth thing is uh, is really, I think, um, once you have done a lot of these things, and I hope you have iterated, you, you have a conviction that what you want to do is something valuable. And then you have to, in many cases, raise funding. You have to go to investors and you have to work, you know, it can be your, 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 your parents or your aunt, or you can take a bank loan, or you can go to venture capitalists, whatever you do. And um, you have to raise from the right people. And uh, you have to remember that you can never fire your investors. They are there for good. So don't pick the money from the wrong people because that can basically get everything derailed very badly. And uh, that many people don't think about that, but uh, that's, I think, super important to keep in mind. And lastly, I think, uh, I mean, like you already said, I think, you know, you have to have fun. You have to embrace the journey, not the outcome. So it's not the sale. It's not the IPO. It's not the one customer. It's the every day of doing something that you love and, Every morning, kind of looking at the mirror, like I think Steve Jobs or whoever said it first, maybe Caesar, I don't know. But looking at the mirror, mirror and saying, like, you know, if I die today, is this what I'm going to do next, the right thing to do? And, uh, I mean, that's a great mentality, I think, if you, if you lo- run your life in that manner. I love that. I love that. Um, let's go back to investors really quick. Um, are you guys – I've heard from – People that get private money. I haven't gotten private money myself. I'm doing a venture conference in July, um, but I haven't personally bought, uh, gotten money. But the more I'm in this like space, the more I'm like, 
No, you know, I, I would probably prefer, you know, 50% of a huge pie than a hundred percent of a small pie. That's how I, is, is that your, your philosophy? Like regarding getting investors? Well, so I'm, I'm, I live in San Francisco and yeah. I've been here last uh, 12 years. Uh, before that I was in, in, in Europe where you had a different ecosystem a little bit, but you know, I, I think um, if you want to build something um, big and impactful, it's quite difficult to do it without uh, funding it with external money. And um, to me, it's more like, you know, uh, it's better to own 5% of the million dollar company than 100% of the million dollar company. And um, yeah. the, the investors, you know, once you pick the right people, and I have had the luxury and I think the good luck of having some of the really good investors to be backing me uh, who have done, you know, they have been backing up some of the greatest companies ever. And um, they know a lot and they can be very helpful because you end up always in difficult issues with people, um, with clients, uh, with other investors. And if you have on your side, people who have seen it, uh, have seen the movie 20 times, it really helps. And now, of course, I think you know, we were uh, quest at, we were in a stage where, you know, you have private equity coming in. So it, private equity normally, you know, the checks are much bigger and private equity owns most of the company. Uh, and then the goal really is to, you know, uh, take the companies public or build a big company that you can sell for, for a lot of money. And you often, in, in that setting, you end up buying a lot, lot of companies. So the private equity funds your activities so you can buy new companies. And I think Quest will end up buying uh, many more companies in the future to become bigger. So you can grow organically or you can grow by buying new revenue and new products and stuff. Obviously, that's faster. Buying is faster, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, before that, you need to have already, you know, established position. Like, you know, we have, like I said, hundreds of years of sales. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. Not like you can do it overnight. But, you know, I think, I, I don't think there's anything wrong of taking money from the venture capitalists. They're, they're, they, they are here in, on the planet to fund entrepreneurs and take risk with them. That's what they do for a living. And, of course, sometimes, you know, they end up firing the founders or they fire you. And that can happen. But, you know being smart about who you pick, uh, you can probably avoid that. Yeah. How do you, how do you identify whether someone would fire you or not? That's hard to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I, th I think, you know, there, there used to be this sort of a website that I can't remember the name of it, but um, it was started maybe 15 years ago that was ranking the VCs. So the entrepreneurs were giving a rating and telling the stories about the venture capitalists. I don't think there's a website like that anymore. But you know, you can talk to other companies that the same investors have funded. And you can, people are very open. I'm, I'm more than happy on one-on-one without the recording to tell you my feedback about the people that you might want to get money from. And um, every entrepreneur, I think, is very open and, and candid with another entrepreneur. And this whole idea of trading, you know, secrets is a very common thing to happen. So I think if you ask people, they, they will help you and tell you the truth. There's in healthcare, there's like this thing where like doctors protect each other. Um, and, uh, and, uh, is that, that's like kind of the same thing in the venture field, right? Where like the entrepreneurs protect each other, like, no, 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 don't, don't give an investment from that firm. It's like really bad or, you know, whatever the case may be. Like, do you feel that's the, yeah. Okay. That's good. 
That's good. That's good to know, you know, because and I think, I think, I think one, one thing of that, I think is maybe even more important. That's more like, you know, like let's talk about the nitty gritty details, but th- th- there's this sort of a, and I like your idea. Like it's almost like being a, uh, a knight. Like we, we knights are, you know, round, round the round table. We are, we are one for all, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the point, what, what I really like about this, and I mean, maybe it's not as evident today as it was maybe, you know, in 2000s, but there's this idea that started, I think, in the Silicon Valley, where people are really believing in the idea of give forward. So I'm helping today somebody, I'm not asking anything for that, but it might well be that that same person will help me a decade later. And once you've now been in this ecosystem for quite a while, and I've been you know, building companies for 20 years, you are, you are seeing these people that you did help 10 years ago, and they now, you know, they became a CEO or whatever, and then they can really help you. Or they became an investor and they can invest. So that's a super interesting. And, and because the, the point, like you said already earlier, that, you know, people are often, you know, they, they don't tend to stay in the same workplace for a decade anymore. They go maybe three, four years, and then they move on. And when you run companies for a long time, you end up having a lot of people who, some of your company stayed and then went elsewhere. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I have actually funded a handful of people who left my company and founded a new company. And I've been an investor in those. Oh, that's so, wonderful. To me, that's oh. wonderful. Like, you know, you can kind of, you, you see that you, know, you maybe help that's these beautiful. people to gain. That's a beautiful process. Gain. That's a beautiful process. Because you already have relationships with these, with these guys. You have like, you know, you've known them. They're, they're like your friends and like, you're like, yeah, I'm going to help you. That's, I think, but that's like the, the most pure form of venture capital that you can get is somebody that you already have a relationship with, somebody you've known for a while, and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I want to invest in you. That's like a huge, uh, it's very flattering for somebody that you know personally and you respect a lot to go, I want to invest in you too. So that's awesome. I love that. And, and it's been really funny because, you know, a couple of these people, they came from Europe and elsewhere. And, and they were afraid that, you know, I'm not going to be mad at them if they leave. But I'm like, you know, some of them spent like five years working with us and did amazing work and helped us greatly. And then they leave. I'm like, I'm, I, I, I didn't buy you for life. I mean, I was just, you know, I wanted to have you here as long as you want to be. But if you go elsewhere, that's amazing. And I mean, like, I'm happy about that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love it. So, um, okay, great. And so the last one is, is have a ton of fun. Um, I, I agree with you having a ton of fun. So I, I want to kind of clarify this. So fun to entrepreneurs may not be fun to everyone else. <laughs> you know, like, so, so like, um, you know, when I talk about fun, like, you know, sometimes you see from the outside, you see entrepreneurs being drugged through the mud and you're like, oh my gosh, that guy's going through a lot. And the entrepreneur's like, yeah, I kind of like it. It's, you know, I just pick, pick myself back up and, you know, I, I, I accomplish something and then it's on to the next day, right? Uh, sorry about that. Um, but so on to the next day, like, do you feel there's different types of fun for different types of people? Like, you know, because I, 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 I want people to understand that like entrepreneurship is very difficult, extremely difficult, right? It's really, it's, it's people, you know, as as much as I don't want to admit this, but people have committed suicide that can't can't succeed or whatever the case may be, or they fail, and it's almost like you almost have to be very comfortable with failure. Do you agree with that? I think you have to be. Again, I already said this, and this is I think it's a very interesting way of thinking life. 
Um, I think the, the Japanese samurai maybe the best uh, back in the days when they said that, you know, you, you start the day by envisioning you being dead. And you basically, you, you start a day by thinking I'm dead and then you have nothing to lose. And they can fully, you know, focus on the activities of the day. And of course, I don't, I'm not saying we can live like that anymore. I don't think we have, maybe we can have a little bit of a summary mentality now. <laughs> but but let, me, let me answer this in a different way that I think, you know, will be interesting to you and maybe somebody else. Um, I'm, a, I'm a rock climber. I've been, I've been rock climbing for 20 years. And that's a hobby that I spend a lot of time nowadays. I'm trying to give it to my kids. And I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. It's like, it's my meditation. I, I climb almost every day. And I, I go to sleep every night uh, mimicking you know, the rock climbing moves like an athlete would do. And, and there's a, a climber called Tommy Caldwell. He's probably the best climber today. He has a movie that is called The Dawn Wall. So he found this new wall in Yosemite, in the El Capitan, the biggest uh, face of rock in the world. And he spent about five years climbing that one face. And, and on the video, he, he says, and I've seen him many times. I don't know him that well, but you know, I met him in the, in the Yosemite, a small circle of people. But he says always that, that I like type two fun. And type two fun for him is to stay month in a wall in a, in a rain and hail and climb <laughs> the rock that nobody has ever climbed. And he has no idea if he can ever get it done. <laughs> and he has already spent half his life doing this. So that's the type two fun that I think, you know, we could also embed into the idea of, you know, entrepreneurship. I mean, fun, I mean, it would be awesome to have fun all the time. We can do that if we use drugs, uh, but that's not really sustainable. So I think, you know, there has to be the ups and downs. And, but it's yeah. just about stopping and, and cherishing the moment when you had a good day, sitting down, looking in a mirror, or being with the family, and just, you know, having fun with that. It, it doesn't be fun all the time, but really, as I said, embrace the journey. And that's what many people say who sail that you leave the sail, you leave the harbor, you are there already. You are not getting to the next island, but you are there once you left the harbor. That's I love the that. idea of what I love, love about this. Yeah, that's true. If you love the game, there's not, there's not many competitors that can compete with you if you love the game. If you like leaving the harbor, like you said, uh, as opposed to like, oh, I'm, I got this other island or whatever the case may be, you know, you're, it's not, it's not about, it's about the journey. If you enjoy the journey, then you have a huge competitive ad advantage over other people. So yep. cool. So how do people, if, if there's an enterprise client listening to this, how, how would that person get a hold of you or how would they get a hold of your sales team? Well, I think, you know, Quest Analytics um, can be found in questanalytics.com. And, um, and I think, you know, many if not all health plans already work with us. So if you are in a health plan, you want to learn more, please contact us. And we are starting to work with more and more hospitals. If you feel that, you know, your data, for example, is not very good at the hospital level, you can work with us to make sure that that data is flowing to the health plans in the right way. And they're going to represent you properly in the network. So, so we are in that ecosystem. And of course, if you are a regulator, I would be happy to talk to you and we would be happy to talk to you about uh, how we can make your state uh, doctor information and doctor access better. We work with almost all the states already. 